good morning, everyone. It's 9.30, so we probably should get started. So I'm going to interrupt all these political discussions. There won't be any of that during Sunday school. <laughs> Let's pray together as we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, comfort and encouragement that it brings to us even uh, when we think about the most difficult of life's circumstances, uh, disappointment and death that are a part of uh, what we understand of life. And we pray that as we study this today, that we would be encouraged um, as we think about those in light of your promised return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are up to 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. What's that? What did I say? Uh, at least I didn't say 2 Corinthians or some such thing. So anyway, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, and um, we're going to begin with verse 13. Um, my goal, um, I guess, is to finish this passage this week. We will see if that happens. Part of the difficulty, as I look at this, is that the, the passage primarily deals with the second coming. But it deals with the second coming in light of the experience of the Thessalonians of grief and death. And I think all of those subjects are important, and so they all have to be dealt with. So um, if we were only going to talk about what he has to say about the return of Christ, uh, we could probably do that pretty easily this today. But I, I also want to talk about the introduction, introductory remarks he makes about grieving and the, the death of loved ones. Um, and so we'll see if we get through it today or if we uh, carry over into next Sunday. So let's read the passage. Uh, First Corinthians, goodness gracious, we're off to a bad start. Um, First Thessalonians 4, and beginning to read with uh, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who uh, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we've gone through First Thessalonians, we've pointed out that there have been repeated brief um, instructions or, uh, or words about the return of Christ. So at the, the final verse of chapter 1, the final verse of chapter 2, near the end of chapter 3, in all of those, uh, we have references uh, to the return of Christ. But this is the first instance, and there will be four going forward in First and Second Thessalonians, where Paul gives more detailed instruction. And that, it, it appears that that's the case because there, were, there was confusion among the Thessalonian believers about some issues related to the return of Christ. As we pointed out with regard to the material we covered the last couple of weeks earlier in chapter 4, Paul was dealing with these things as a result of what Timothy had reported back to him 
after his visit there. And so uh, Timothy said, the church is doing well. They think well of you. They are continuing in the faith. Um, But there are some issues that they are dealing with. Uh, One of those issues that we talked about briefly last week was the uh, sin of idleness and being busybodies. Um, they were there were moochers in the church taking advantage of the church's generosity, and so that was one of the issues. And now he's going to deal with another issue that Paul, uh, Timothy had told him about, that being some questions, uh, some fears even with regard to the return of Christ. And so we want to walk through this carefully. I think in light of um, some of the modern discussion of this passage and what it says about those uh, from those who believe in a two-stage second coming. I think it's helpful to walk through this carefully and note what's actually in the passage as opposed to things that people import into it um, and, and sometimes uh, I think probably without good reason. So we'll walk through this carefully and that means that we start with not the subject of the uh, return of Christ, but of the context in which Paul is talking about this, and that is um, the context of some believers um, in the congregation having died, and the, the, the church not really knowing what to do with this. So, j- just to kind of set what appears to be the context, um, evidently from the number of references that we see in these short letters to the return of Christ, this was something that Paul had talked a lot about during his ministry there. It was not a neglected subject or not something that was a tag on to other things that he taught, but it was evidently something that was discussed a lot. And that's not surprising because this was a suffering church. They were a persecuted church. And for folks that are suffering, the hope of Christ's return and the setting straight of all things is a blessed hope um, for us. And so Paul had talked about the return of Christ. Evidently, some of the believers had gotten so interested in the return of Christ that they, like modern folks, they got some incorrect ideas about it. They not only started believing that Christ would return, or not, not only believing that Christ could return during their lifetimes, but they started believing that he will return during our lifetimes. They, they had a kind of certainty about it. And then somebody, one or more people in the congregation, died. And that set them into confusion. You know, if Christ is coming right away and he's going to come back for all of his people, what's, what's going on here? And so there was, uh, does this mean that they weren't really Christians? Does this mean that they're going to miss out on some of the blessings of the second coming? What, what's happening here? How, how could this have happened? And so um, something that should have been a teaching, um, to borrow the words from the last verse, that would encourage them became something that, in Paul's earlier words, was causing them uh, to grieve like hopeless people grieve. And and so that's the reason, it seems, for Paul's correction here. In light of the death of some of our fellow members of the church, what's that say about the return of Christ? So just thinking about this generally then, um, 
as we've said, an incorrect understanding of the coming of Christ can be a cause of grief. And Paul says that in in verse 13. They were grieving, and Paul wanted them to stop grieving like hopeless people grieve. On the other hand, a correct understanding of the coming of Christ can be a source of encouragement. And Paul says that clearly in verse 18. And therefore, um, these matters deserve our attention. I do think um, that the doctrine of the return of Christ is frequently neglected in Reformed churches. And I think it's neglected in part because, you know, a lot of the people that talk about the return of Christ are the date setters and and people that have um, some way out ideas about what it all means. And, you know, we don't want to be associated with that, right? And so uh, because of that, there may be a tendency not to talk about the subject at all. Or it could be that people don't talk about the subject because they find it too complicated. And so, um, you know, once people start saying, well, are you a premillennialist or an amillennialist or a postmillennialist? And people's eyes just start glazing over and they say, I, you know, those are long words. I don't know. I don't, I can't even figure out what all that's about. So, um, you know, for all these kinds of reasons, this subject may be neglected, but, um, Paul deals with it a lot here. The other scriptural writers do as well. Um, This is a blessed hope um, for believers. And so we're making a mistake if we neglect the subject, even with um, its complexities or even with um, the fact that some deal with it poorly. Thoughts before we jump in? Words I can't shoot up or I can't spell. But kind of that idea of always having someone ask me when I think I go, I believe Christ is coming back and he's going to do it the way he's going to do it, and we're probably all wrong on something. <laughs> I mean, because when you look at the Pharisees, none of them are right about Jesus. Why would we assume our track record's going to be any better? <laughs> so I'm like, he's going to come, he's going to do it his way, and it doesn't matter what my opinion is. So I, I don't know if that's incorrect and if I should care or have an opinion or. Well, I do think there's value in digging into it more than that. So, um, so we'll, we'll start there. That I, I do think that um, from Scripture we can find some direction. It's not my intention the next today or next week to get into all of the details of that. So, but I do think there's value in it. And if it's something you're interested in digging into, I, I'm happy to suggest resources and 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 that sort of thing. So, I think there's value. On the other hand, I think that something that you've expressed that I think is also important is I think that we all should have um, uh, humility about um, our understandings of the second coming because um, it it is a complex subject that um, dominant views across the church have ebbed and flowed um, over the years. And any time anybody makes an, a particular understanding of the second coming a litmus test um, for if whether or not you believe the Bible or not um, and that sort of thing, that's always a red flag to me because this is um, there is too much complex information to make it a litmus test. So I, 
at this point in my life, I have pretty strong opinions as to which one is right. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, Chitty, if you disagree with me, you need to be saved. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, and, and that, I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating, but some people take that strong of a view. I mean, I've, I've heard, um, I've heard people that say, you know, if you're a non-millennialist, that just means that you spiritualize all the promises of the Bible and you're no different than the liberals are. You reject uh, the true meaning of Scripture. And, um, and that's when you look at the, the believers that have been amillennialists um, over the centuries, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Um, and maybe part of my, what I hope is humility, comes from the fact that there are four primary views, and over the course of my life I've held three of those. Um, I obviously think that the one I hold now is correct, <laughs> I really don't think the fourth one is one I will ever consider um, at this point. But um, the one I've never considered might be the one that some of you hold. So, um, so anyway, the fact that I've changed my mind on these things causes me to think I should be pretty humble about it. Um, and and I, I, I worry when I hear... Uh, believers talk about the the subject as though you know if you hold another view um, then then you're just spiritually not what you should be or you may not be a Christian or you may not believe the Bible or or some such thing that really is over the top so humility is important Chuck uh, GK Beale in his commentary on first Thessalonians has some interesting comments about the Greek word that's been used here for coming he says it can be translated as coming, but it can also be translated, in fact, he says preferably translated as presence. Because we get the impression that somehow Christ is going to come, from, come down from heaven to earth. And that may not be precisely what is going to happen. That he's going to actually make his... Uh, in fact, Beale says, what has been traditionally understood as the second coming of Christ is best conceived as a revelation of his formerly hidden heavenly presence. The old world reality will be ripped away and the dimension of the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. So, uh, even to complicate matters further, uh, in terms of the different views, it may not, the coming may not be the Romans chapter 8 also gets into this the fact that there's a uh, that the old creation is um, fading away and, and the new creation his coming will consummate the new creation and we will perhaps instantly be a part of a new dimension a new world that uh, rather than a part of the old so, so his coming will not be in fact, there's always been a question of, well, he's, will the people in London and Tokyo see his coming the same as the those in Dallas? And of course, if Beale is right, that becomes a non sequitur. It's an interesting thought, and that's a that's a nuance on that term that I've never heard before. So that's that's um, interesting. I'll I need to follow up and think about that some more. But um, yeah, the the the, word, the term um, is is interesting because it. it 
it also has the idea of the arrival or the presence of um, a uh, of a dignitary, and um, and so the, the the use of that term for many reasons in this context is is interesting. Julie. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and um, I was going to talk about that later, but I hate it when teachers do that, so I'm just no, going to go ahead and talk about it now. So um, that's why I end up messing up my outline and getting everything out of order. I like to do that. So, um, so yeah, it, it's interesting that um, Paul um, speaks of these deceased Christians as sleeping, as those that have fallen asleep. And in contrast, when he talks about um, Jesus, he says Jesus died. And so there, there's a contrast between the way he speaks of the death of Jesus and that of the believers. I think that what we, and some have tried to take this kind of terminology as indica- indicative of some kind of soul sleep or that kind of view. But that doesn't really seem to be um, what Paul has in mind where, you know, where he emphasizes um, other, uh, otherwise in this passage that the souls of those um, who are uh, deceased, that God is bringing with him um, at, at these events. And so um, the idea here seems to be that soul and body are separated, but not that the soul is sleeping. I think that what we see here is the pastoral concern of um, Paul. And so he's aware that these folks are grieving and so he speaks of the death of their fellow Christians in gentle terms as an expression of his realization that, you know, I'm, I'm correcting your misunderstandings, but I'm not being harsh with you. And I, I understand that you are people that are grieving. So I think that, that that's the reason for the use of the term and the reason for the contrast between speaking more forthrightly of the death of Jesus. We... It, it's it's kind of interesting as I've thought about this because I, I've heard I've heard um, Christian leaders that I think mean well, but but that have said things along the lines of you know when we talk about death, we need to talk about it in the sharpest terms because we need to make sure that that um, that people aren't passing over or making light of something that in the in the Bible. Um, is is harsh and is not the way things are, are supposed to be. Death has come about because of of sin in the world, and and we need to make clear the uh, reality of death. We can't let people um, pass over that. Well, there's something to be said for that, but I don't find it to be the pastoral example of Paul, who um, at times, yes, will speak of death in very sharp terms, making sure that we are aware of that reality. He speaks of God's judgment in very sharp terms, making sure that we are aware of its reality. Um, And yet here um, we find him speaking um, to these believers, talking about death in terms of your fellow believers have fallen asleep, being more gentle because pastorally he understands that that's the need. And so, you know, I, I hear folks say, say never use terms like passed away because that's, um, that's not being as clear that we're talking about death and that sort of thing. But I, I think that we need to be um, cognizant 
of people's emotional states um, and, and what their need is um, at the moment um, when we talk about, uh, about these, these issues of importance and, and causes for grief and sorrow um, in their lives. So I, I think that it's a matter of Paul's pastoral sim- sympath- uh, sensitivity. It's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that. Um, it may be, but I, I've never, I've never thought about that. It's that's an. All of you are coming up with things I hadn't thought about before. So, that's a good class. I think that's I think that's correct. But he can't mess around with Jesus and call that asleep because we need to know that Jesus died. Yeah, yeah a- absolutely, and and so all those reasons are the reasons for the contrast here. Well put. Others. Okay, now that I've gone out of order, let me see let me see where I can pick up. Let's look again at verses thirteen and fourteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who uh, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The, the introductory phrase there that Paul uses, I don't want you to be uninformed, is a standard way that he uses in other places of introducing a subject. So you see it in Romans 1, I think it's verse 14, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, and uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. I did get around to Corinthians, finally. Um, so uh, Paul, in those passages, um, introduces subjects in similar, um, in similar ways. I don't want you to be unaware um, about this. Um, Paul here, and this is important, and we may stop and we may take the rest of the class with this uh, thought and then uh, get into the details of the return or the uh, presence of Christ next week. Now the pressure will be on to find the Beal passage and and look up the word uh, parousia and figure out all the nuances of meaning um, with regard to that. But um, we may spend the rest of the, the today on this thought. Notice that Paul does not tell them not to grieve. He tells them not to grieve like hopeless people grieve. And that's an extremely important um, (coughs) distinction. Um, um, I'm just going to figure out how I want to organize this. Um, there, there are some Christians that take passages of Scripture that are along the lines of rejoice in the Lord always. And they take those to mean, you know, rejoicing is to be the dominant um, emotion that you feel and express no matter what. And if you are feeling or expressing something else, then, um, then you're not right with the Lord. 
And, and this is far more common than, than what we might wish. It's, it's often said that, um, that social media like Facebook actually cause people to be depressed because everybody's putting their best foot forward. Everybody's talking about their family life and their work and their, their hobbies and their travel as though their life is perfect. And so, you know, and, and then we measure what people think of it by the number of likes that we're getting. And, you know, if somebody's looking at all of that and their life's not all that hot, it, it can, you know, sort of further your sense that, you know, I, I'm not doing as well as, as all of my friends are. And so the idea is that things like Facebook can be a source of depression for people. But let me ask a hard question. Do sometimes do churches do the same thing? where we want to also give the impression that, you know, things are good for me, I'm spiritual, I'm growing. Yeah, I have problems, but, you know, I'm walking with the Lord and it's all all right. And, you know, really, you know, we don't, we don't let people at church know that, you know, the, the kids are a mess and my job is a mess and, and um, my finances are a mess, or, you know, whatever. But we, you know, we put on the rosy smile and sort of skate through in a very artificial way, and the the uh, and we create an atmosphere where true grieving um, is not something that people feel comfortable expressing. Some years ago, I wrote a book review. The book was um, entitled "Rejoicing in Lament." Um, it's, it was a book by Todd Billings. Billings is a seminary professor at. Western Theological Seminary in Michigan, and at age 39, with two recently adopted toddlers, um, Billings was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which some of you will remember is the same cancer that um, that uh, Chase Schilling um, um, had as well. And and so Billings uh, wrote this book, Rejoicing in Lament, as a series of reflections. Uh, mostly from the Psalms, but other passages of Scripture um, related to his diagnosis and treatment and his, um, you know, his meditations from Scripture um, as, as, he went, as he's gone through some of those things. So I wrote a review of that book, and um, in response to that review, an old friend of mine from another state um, wrote this. She said... Um, she said, I am greeted often by other women at church who are in one form of mourning or another. They, they sheepishly cry after church while they share with me what has brought them to their place of grief. They don't want people from church to know they are hurting. And those to me are haunting words. The idea that, and this was a, a friend who is a Presbyterian, she's a member of a, of a Reformed church. But she said, at our church, there are women that talk to me, and they don't want people at church to know they are hurting. What, what, a, what a discouraging idea that, um, as church folks, we can create an atmosphere where folks are not comfortable expressing their troubles and sorrows. And so I think it's something that we should be aware of, um, that that... that um, that can happen. Paul here does not tell them that he doesn't want them to grieve. 
He tells them that they don't want to grieve. He doesn't want them to grieve like hopeless people grieve. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because I mean sometimes we are, um, and of course we we all, um, you know, we all have other things going on and and are busy with our lives, but because of that, sometimes when somebody in the church, sometimes we do, when we do know somebody's hurting, we're really good at the short term ministry, you know. So if somebody's experiencing a hospitalization or a death, you know, we get the meals there and all that sort of, all that's wonderful. I'm not, um, I, I'm thankful that we do that and. Um, I've benefited from those kind of ministries in the past. So all those are good, but it, it, it's it's so easy to do the thing that's for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And then if we don't have close relationships with the person that's hurting, we sort of let it slide off to the side and we forget that they may conti- be continuing to hurt, um, even though we've moved on to the next thing. So, yeah, it's it's... And it's, it's, I think it's harder for churches in our day because um, all of us are, are so mobile. Not, so not many of us are from around here. And, um, you know, this church hasn't been around that many years. So I don't think any of us in this room can say we grew up in this church. You know, we're all from other places, which means that there's a certain amount of disconnectedness among us. And so to create those connections where we have long-term ministry to one another is really hard to to accomplish it's it's not easy to do and so it's um but you know we we may have people in our midst that need that that um yeah because the hurt doesn't go away in a year i mean the the other way that we see this is we tend to be really good at the stories where somebody comes in and they become they're converted to become a christian they say yeah i was I was a drunk until two weeks ago, or two, two, two years ago, and Lord saved me, and I've never wanted a drink since. We love those stories. But what about the person that continues to struggle? That Yeah, they're, they're converted, and, and there's been a real change in their lives because of their relationship with Christ, but you know they have fallen off the wagon since then. Um, and, and we don't like those stories as much. Chuck? One of the things that gives me some comfort with this thing is the fact that I'm looking at what is called the fourth servant psalm in the book of Isaiah. 
and that we're all familiar with if we were to read it, starting at the end of Isaiah 52, going to chapter 53. And as we read this about Christ, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We're familiar with that when we think of that in terms of Christ, but we forget the fact that we as Christians identify with Christ. This is not only his identity, it's our identity as, as well. We also wow. Great are counted among those who were despised and rejected by mm. men, men of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and, and, and we esteemed him not. That's not only him, that's also us. And we need to realize that we're part of that, that uh, population. Great point. And not only are we identified with Christ, but he exemplified all of these things for us. So, um, when Jesus went to the tomb of a friend, it's the only verse that Tom Sawyer memorized. What did he do? Jesus wept. So, you know, I want to be careful about this. I I said that Paul was um, pastorally sensitive, and I don't want to be Sunday school teacher insensitive in the way I talk about this. But um, nowadays, we're so addicted to the idea of, uh, I say we, I mean, a lot of churches in general, so addicted to the idea that Christianity is a rejoice all the time, um, lots of energy and vigor and all that sort of thing. That nowadays we are even referring to funerals as celebrations of life. Now, if you've ever had somebody die and that was your relationship and you felt good about it being a celebration of life, I'm not criticizing you. But, um, and even when um, an OPC uh, leader passed away recently, I noticed on the OPC's website that the family was having a celebration of life. I'm not criticizing that. Please don't hear me that way. But when Jesus went to the tomb, he didn't say, I'm here to celebrate Lazarus. He wept. And we shouldn't, while we may feel like celebrating, hey, this friend of mine lived a good life, that's fine. But it may be that, but we shouldn't think that, well, that's because we're spiritual people and we're celebrating instead of crying. Jesus wept at the... uh, at the uh, graveside of his friend that passed away. Did you know that one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament? And they are, they are, by lament, it's not just an expression of sorrow, but it's an expression that, God, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Uh, turn to Psalm 13. I'm not, not because it's... Uh, a particularly special one, but it's short, and so we can see this. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And verses 5 and 6, we find the psalmist um, resolving um, these thoughts. But I dare say that if somebody came in on Sunday and started talking like the first four verses, our temptation might be to say, brother, you need to calm down. Or in fact, this is, this is scripture. This is somebody saying, God, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And by the way, things aren't the way they're supposed to be because this world was not created for sin and death. Those things came in because of the failure of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So death is, is in the world. Despair is in the world. Depravity is in the world. Disease is in the world. Not because that's what God created the world before, but because of the entrance of sin. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so that's why we have these psalms of lament. And that's why we have grieving, but not grieving like hopeless people grieve. Because we know that ultimately that God is in control. And that at the return of Christ, that all things are going to be set straight. We know that death does not have the final word. And so we grieve, but we don't grieve like hopeless people grieve. And, and that's, the, uh, that's the thought that we have here. Others? In this psalm, the verb tense is not, you know, I am grieving and I, I am rejoicing. It is I will rejoice, but it's mm. because I have trusted. Yeah. The verbs are, are a beautiful comfort to you. It, it is okay, Christian, to weep. Mm-hmm. But remember that hope springs. Great point. Great point. Other thoughts? Well, that's why we're okay. I always thought if, if you understand Joe, you really can get to that. I mean, he went through quite a bit, but yet he still had that hope. So true, so true. Other thoughts? Um, Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, commentaries on the Psalms, um, wrote about Psalm 62 8, which uh, says, Pour out your heart before him. And Calvin commented, We are all too apt to shut up our affliction in our breast. And he goes on to point out, that actually shutting up our afflictions can lead to bitterness against God, and that it's better that we pour out our hearts before him um, so that we might be led to his promises. So we haven't even gotten to the return of Christ today. We've talked about death, and we've talked about grief. Um, And these are not final enemies because of the promises of the gospel. Look um, at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so in, in, in order to deal with their grief in a way that says, yes, grieve, but not like hopeless people grieve, he draws their attention back to the gospel because the gospel ultimately um, provides the foundational answer 
to human great grief. It's interesting that actually Paul's closing words encourage one another with the, with these words are reflected in a letter um, that has been discovered from the second century, so um, roughly a hundred years after Paul write, wrote. And one of the uh, and and the the letter writer is writing to somebody who had lost a spouse, and. Um, and the, the letter closes, after talking some about the difficulty of losing the spouse, the, the letter writer closes by saying, but what is a person to do in the face of this? Comfort one another with these words. So they had, they had no basis for comfort, and yet, and yet said, be comforted. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's sort of, people without Christ that's what they have and that's why we see all around us people attempting to ignore um, death and um, try as much as possible to disguise themselves from it Um, but in contrast uh, as Christians we have the gospel and the fact that Christ has himself conquered death and because he has conquered death in our behalf um, means that, first of all, we have a sufficient Savior and conqueror who has already uh, won that victory. And second, we have the promises and the guarantees that those for whom Christ did die and rise, he will not lose. So we have been united with him and um, the fact of, uh, of having faced temporal death does not mean that Christ has lost um, those for whom he died. And th- these are promises that Paul elaborates on in many places elsewhere, such as Romans 8, um, where he, he assures us that if, um, if Christ died for us, that nobody can be against us and that none of us uh, will be lost for whom he died. Um, He's already conquered death. He conquered death for those that are his. Uh, because he has, aris- has risen and ascended, those for whom he died and rose are with him and awaiting his return and final resurrection. And they are not separated from him. So this morning we've dealt with uh, the bad news about death and grief. And the bad news that sets us up for next Sunday to talk about the good news in light of Jesus' uh, Resurrection and looking forward to his return. Final thoughts, comments? Um, I hope this isn't just my hobby horse and everybody's found this valuable, but it's um, it, it, these are subjects that should be the, the church's strength because we have a message that others don't have. And yet it's almost as though in many churches they're afraid to talk about it. I remember reading... Um, I don't know, 25 years ago, J.I. Packer published a series of essays in a book. I think most of his books are series of essays. But the, um, the book's title um, came from one of the essays. The humorous title was Hot Tub Religion. And he, he said that with all the emphasis on um, bubbly, fun, excited worship that maybe some churches should consider um, installing hot tubs to just go all all the way with the direction they're going anyway. And he wrote that 25 years ago. I think 
he had no idea how present, how prescient he was. He had to change the title of the book. It was first published as Jacuzzi Religion. After it was published and printed and uh, widely available, they had uh, Jacuzzi sued them using uh, that uh, word. He had to reprint it as Hot Tub Religion. I had never heard that before. Interesting. So anyway, Packer at one point in the book talks about the fact, he, he talks about things that he had learned from the Puritans. And if you've read Packer's writings, you know that, um, that the lessons from the Puritans are one of his themes throughout his writings. But in talking about lessons from the Puritans, he said that one of the lessons was that they had taught him that the Christian life um, was preparatory for the life that is to coming that is coming, and he says it's from the Puritans I learned that I'm to keep my bags packed up and ready to go. Uh, the comment that he added to that was, "I'm glad I learned it from the Puritans because um, he said I don't hear it much in my day." Um, and he added the comment, which and Packer. Um, is still living, but not in good health. I think at the time he wrote that, he was about 60 years of age. And so you can do the math. He's a good bit older now. But uh, Packer said, um, I'm glad I learned it from the Puritans because up till now I've been in good health, but I know that it can't possibly last. And so the, these, are, these are lessons that we should not hide from and that the church should make sure that it's teaching because none of us, um, well, all of us know that, that barring the return of Christ, that death is certain, and that uh, much of the story of Christianity is that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we do not need fear. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that uh, we would be comforted in them, uh, not only with regard to our futures, but with uh, regard to uh, friends and family that uh, we have lost. We pray that we would find uh, comfort in Scripture and um, in the accomplishment of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.